Hi there, I'm Lorraine. And I'm Rosie. And welcome to this episode of our podcast, What If? Very special guest we've mm. got. Looking forward to this, are you? Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you say though about Eddie Izzard? Actor. Yeah. Comedian. Comedian. A raconteur. Marathon runner. Oh, unbelievable. Do you say marathon runner or do you say just runner? Or do you say... I just think you say... Marathoner? It's not a word, marathoner. is it? Marathoner. No, I think it should be. Let's make that word up. Marathoner. Okay. Extraordinaire. Eddie, how are you? How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? We're very, very, very well. Very well. Thank you so much for doing this. It's so, no so kind problem. of you. It really is. Yeah, you're our first ever global guest. Yes. Because you're coming from Canada, yeah. we think. Canada? Um, yes. I am filming here in Canada at the moment for some time, actually. Ooh. Oh. And is it a movie? It's a TV series that is uh, launching soon, actually, but here in America, well, in America, because it's an American TV series called um, uh, Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. Dan Brown did Da Vinci Code. So it's a 10-part thriller mystery that's going out on Peacock, which is the new NBC streaming channel. I don't even know if Canada's going to be able to see it immediately. So even though I'm filming in Canada, I'm, I'm doing an American series. And as TV and film, was that always the dream for you? Was it always... Well, I, I've tried to track it back and tried to be honest about it because you can sort of elaborate on things. But I do know that I saw a play in J- January 1970. I've tracked that down. And this play is called A Boy With A Cart or A Boy With His Cart, which is by Christopher Fry. I saw that and this was about... So mum died in March of 68. So this is January of 70. So it's almost two years after mum died. And I've retrospectively analysed that I think, due to mum disappearing, that this love, she's a very loving mother, and that disappeared. She was a nurse as well, so she was a caring and loving mother, and then boom, she just goes, and suddenly the audience affection for the, for the um, particularly one actor who was getting a, a very good reaction on stage, and I just thought, I want this. And it's probably mm. the desperation for love, which is what I was substituting for an audience so I was desperately trying to be an actor, 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 actor. Then I liked comedy and I used to watch comedy. I didn't realise it was a separate thing. And then I went down to London, spent a year sort of doing nothing, came out in that year, which is a very good year in retrospect. And then I got into street performing. And then I went to stand-up. That started taking off. Then I told everyone that I was TV trans about five years after I'd come out to my friends and then stand-up took off. And then I started doing drama then. So there's the long, curvy mm. history. My... Ah. My thing, things in my life take forever to get there. That's what I found. Um, I seem to have been chosen. You, you will get there, but it'll take a long bloody time. That's, that's what it seems. And was there ever a sort of like a, yeah, and it was a great answer. Was there ever a sort of, I mean, a big breakthrough, like a sort of one of those moments in your life where you think, right, okay, that was when it all started getting somewhere. You know, I was, I was actually doing what I want to do. There was one break situation, which was when I went on Hysteria 3 Benefit and there were a lot of well-known names doing Hysteria 3 and I went on and I was unknown. That was a definite ladder. But there was one uh, break before that, which was like a realisation thing as opposed to a big leap forward. I think the Hysteria 3 thing helped propel me forward. But anyway, this this was the one thing which which I thought was very interesting. Street performing is one of the greatest mediums to learn. It's amazing. It's a ninja training um, medium for particularly for comedy not really for drama I don't think you do drama on the streets uh, but for comedy it is and I did four years of that down at Covent Garden up at, up at the Edinburgh Festival certain other places Holland I do gigs certain runs around Europe 
And um, I remember seeing a band called Pookie Snackenberger and a, and a comedy group called Cliffhanger, both from Brighton. And they used to do these big shows up at Edinburgh and they were hugely successful, hugely popular. People would love to, I'd get there earlier. All my friends would get there earlier. We'd just watch them and they would improvise and it was on the streets and they would muck about and things would happen and crazy people would come into their shows and they'd, they'd just build it all in. And we thought, we've got to do this. So we started doing that. But I remember the kind of excitement it gave off meant that people were coming to see Pookie Stabberger and Cliffhanger play. And Pookie's turned into Stomp. You might have a Stomp, Stomp play all around the world. The amazing show Stomp. So I remember being inspired by that and thinking I've got to do something like that, or we did. And so we started doing stuff on the street. And street is really hard. It's the hardest thing. It's harder than stand-up. I mean, stand-up's pretty hard, but street performing is even harder because the audience will just walk away. They're not there to see you. You have to be that exciting. You have to do physical mm. situation comedy to, to, to keep their attention. And I failed for... I, I lost, actually lost all my confidence. It was quite a, an interesting journey. So I got to Covent Garden, thought, I'll get this in two weeks, and then off we go. This was my sort of confident self. And I was, I was flailing around. Me and my partner, Rob, we, were, we, we just couldn't get it going. So I analysed the hell out of the street and I, and I worked out what I was doing wrong. And then there was a show up at the Edinburgh Festival and I started, I was, I was a solo act by then and I set out all my props, used to set out things and put them on the street, on the floor of the street. This is up at the Mound in Edinburgh mm. um, and this great performance space. And so I was putting out these weird things, animal tea cosies, like a duck and a, and a hippo that, that, that were tea cosies, but they looked like a duck and a hippo and they were just odd. And you, I put them on the floor so people would think, oh, this odd person is going to do something odd. And you just, you could build up an audience this way. And there was a, there was one gentleman, one bloke, as I was setting up, he just went, oh, and then he ran away from me. So he went, oh, and then and ran off. And I looked up and I saw him running away and I thought, Oh, that's, I don't know what that is. I don't know why, he, oh, he obviously doesn't like me or something. Anyway, he's run away. But then a few, I carried on setting up and a few minutes later, he was dragging his family back up and he sort of plonked them there as one of the first audience members there. And um, this fa- and then I built up an audience and I did the show and I realised that I was giving off the it quality, the it thing that I'd seen in, in the Pookies and Cliffhanger. I'd, I'd seen this it thing that, made, you've got to see this. Hey, hey, everyone, you've got to come see this, the mm-hmm. word of mouth thing, because he dragged his family back. And I realized, whoa, I'm doing it. I'm doing it because and I know I was, it was because I was improvising, particularly because I was improvising. I didn't know what I was going to do in that show. And that's the thing of why it's worth coming back to again and again and again. And that's, that's folded into my stand-up as well. I never quite know what I'm going to say in a stand-up show. So it's intriguing to come along just to see, or it's intriguing for me just to see what the hell's going to happen today. See, I love that. And you said, you know, stand-up is really hard. And if, as if it wasn't hard enough, you, you do it in, in different languages, Eddie. You do French, Russian. Have you not done Spanish and Arabic? Well, French, German, French, German and Spanish are already up and running. Arabic and yeah. Russian are to come. And, right. uh, and, and, and I have said this for a few years, but I will get to them and I've got to get to them quick because there's also politics that, that I want to uh, be elected as a, yes. as a politician. And then once that happens, I think everything else will slow down. What was the moment that you decided that that's something you wanted to go into? It was interesting. It was always sitting there as a... I wanted to do creative work. And if I wasn't going to do that, then I should do politics. I don't know why it was kind of, it, it was quite certain that it was there as, as a potential thing. And this was back at when I was 18. So I kept it there and it, it sort of trundled along. And then there came a point, 
Uh, and that point was in uh, 2008, where I thought, I think I have to do this. I have to, I love my career. I love what I'm doing, the creative work, the dramatic creative work, the comedic creative work, uh, but I'm gonna have to stop this and go into politics. Now, there wasn't a huge amount of, I think maybe by that time, uh, Glenda Jackson had already done that. And my idea was to come back and Glenda Jackson has come back to um, creative work and has done very- Amazing, uh, absolutely incredible. Amazing return after 22 years. So it shows what could happen. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the only other example that's out there and he comes from a more (laughs) action hero thing. So I I, I tried to analyze what is the key thing you have to have and it's critical momentum. Critical Mm -hmm. momentum as opposed to star momentum. So if you imagine someone who was a very good looking male actor, female actor and had all that sort of good lookingness about them, you know, uh, in that standard way and and then they went into politics. Then after 10 years, 15 years, if they went back, their looks would have faded and that audience would have gone and, and, and they would probably had a really tough time. Schwarzenegger is a slightly different place because he was action hero. So when he came back after seven years, which is not that long away, it was it has been a little difficult for him getting his footing since he's come back. Um, but he's a different person and he, you know, he, he, he had relationship things that went all wrong and whatever. So anyway, that's his one. Mm, and then there's yeah. Glenda Jackson who went in for 23 years and came out and went straight back onto the West End and then onto Broadway. And if she turned up in Game of Thrones as one of the... Uh, the act, the uh, characters in that, and you'd have gone, yeah, well, let's see what Glenda Jackson does because she's lived a life and we want to see yeah. what she'll show of the human condition through that role. And so it, it's the it's the critical momentum you need as opposed to anything flashy and starry, which, which tends to fade. If you have one of those careers that take off like a rocket, they come down like a rocket. Mm. But my career goes up like a balloon. I've tried to make it <laughs> up like a balloon. So, so when it comes down, it'll come down like a balloon. Like a balloon, then go back up again, and then back down again, and then back up again. Yeah, sure. and that's how that's how that's how it all works. But politics, though, especially now, is really toxic, Eddie. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of really able, really intelligent, really bright people just run away from it. They don't want to be part of it. They really don't. Hence, we've got some pretty poor people in charge generally you know never mind the the, the politics of it just the, the generally their ability is very low and that here you are somebody at the top of their game who is actually going towards it which i think is a great thing because i think you will encourage others to to follow you which which would gosh do we ever need that I'm- I'm not sure if I will encourage people. I will try to encourage people. And I say, because moderate people, you know, I'm a radical and a moderate. I do radical things with a moderate message. Um, yeah. And anyway, I, I just strongly believe that the stakes of this century, I, this is how I've analysed it, is that 21st century, it's just the number 21st, 21st century, it's a number we've come up with. But it's kind of interesting because it's like the 21st, 21 is seen as the coming of age. This could be the coming age of humanity this century. And I think the basic right of people should be a right for a fair chance in life. Everyone should have the, uh, have the right to have a fair chance in life. And we haven't got there yet. politics is very hopeful you know it's all about being optimistic and do you think for somebody like you who's very authentic and very honest is there a place for that in modern politics or do we have to change politics in order for people like you to get in and to make a difference i don't i don't know i mean i'm a member of the labor party so i i 
if there's a good fit by election that comes along or in the next general election, I will be going. I'm pretty sure I can get in. And if I don't get in, I'll just keep going until I do get in. I am a relentless bastard like this. So um, <laughs> it's tricky. I don't, I don't know what I can do in politics. I de- definitely know I can do more than nothing. Um, I'm not going to set the bar really high. I'm not going to say I'm cha- going to change the world of it. But you, But it is a machine and you have to be inside the machine to know what to do mm. and I don't think you know people say can't you do more from outside of politics and I don't think you can you can't get legislation made and enacted outside politics but you can do a number of things and you can be very supportive and the, and in the long term the groundswell of opinion like like recycling came from people a groundswell of opinion from people outside but I don't think it was an internal political thing it was people saying Oh, I'm going to buy you know food that is uh, is better sourced, is where the animals are living and better, more free range lives, and that has gradually come into into being. Um, LGBT people, the, the, the LGBTQ people, the, the, the pressure coming from that, saying you know can't we just live and let live, you know trying to live positive lives, and so people so so they've been brought into society. When I came out as as TV slash trans back in '85, I knew that my job was to try and bring trans in into society it was outside society when I was there it was toxic it was considered outside you are an outsider and I knew I had to bring it in by living what I consider uh, I consider myself very boring um, oh, I don't I, think I, might, I don't I think might, you could ever say that about you. <laughs> well, so. I, I might live I might live an interesting life, but that's to make okay. my life my my <laughs> natural boringness. Because I will have a cup of tea and say, "Oh yes," and and isn't the weather? It's God, it's it's a bit <laughs> rainy, isn't it? Why, why are you having so? You know, I will do that. I, I won't go. Come on, revolution, and then and come on, let's go and spray <laughs> paint the walls. I don't do that. I'm kind of boring. I'm radical and moderate. You know, so that is that is my way. Yes. Anyway, so that's what I'm, I'm going to try and go into politics. Uh, well, I will go into politics. Uh, I'll just keep pushing till I get in, and I will try and do what I can to to put more positive, inclusive ideas out there rather than this negative exclusion. This yeah. and this appealing. I think Boris Johnson just appeals to the lowest common base. And I know a woman got up, um, uh, an MP got up in in Parliament and said that he lied, and she was told, "Oh, yeah, don't say he lied." But Boris Johnson. I think he's proud of his lies. I think he he likes to get up and lie and and uh, just see what he can get away with. I think that's how he looks at it. Lying and pushes is part it and of his pushes nature. it and pushes it. That's the thing. I mean, yeah. things that that people would have resigned for not that long ago. Um, yeah. He, I mean, the list is endless. That that's that's the Ooh. thing. It's interesting what you were saying about you know being trans and. Do you think, it's a, probably a bit of a silly question, but, but do you think it was less difficult for you because of the job that you were doing and the fact that people considered you maybe, you know, obviously hilariously funny, brilliant at what you do, slightly eccentric. Was it less difficult for you to come out? Was yes. it less, do you think? Yes. Yeah, it's our job. If you look back to women wearing trousers, just women wearing trousers right. as opposed to women saying that, that yeah. they are lesbian, women wearing trousers came from Marlena Dietrich and Catherine Hepburn. Catherine so Hepburn. two very strong women known around the world with their power, their notoriety, their their profile, they could throw on trousers and say, yeah, I'm wearing trousers because it was, an, I think it was, it was seen as outlandish back oh, in the day. Oh, bizarre! Utterly, oh, totally. yeah, 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 yeah. I can't yeah. even think about yeah. that. I know it's, it's true, Rosie. That was the, that was yeah. absolutely shocking to people in the sort of thirties. Yeah. It was like women wearing trousers. Where will it all end? <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. I know. And so I, I think know. they did that. And then it went into America joining the war or Britain joining the war. And I think a lot of women were wearing probably trousers in the factories. Uh, you saw yeah. pictures of that, Rosie the Riveter. You could see that. And then it becoming more positively normalized. And it's the positive normalization. So I knew it was my job as someone who was creative and not. And I actually met someone in the, in the TVTS help group when I first came out up in, in Upper Street. And they said, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I can't do this. They, they will just, they will fire me if I throw on a dress and some makeup. So you've got to do this. And I said, I know. I, I knew that. But it, it has to come from creative people. Creative people, um, when it comes to lifestyle adjustments, we are in a better position to make that change. And interestingly, it, it doesn't come from music so much because you think the whole glam rock period. Yeah. Well, wasn't that? And then you've got, and then you've got the, the Blitz kids, uh, you know, coming up later in the early 80s. And in fact, because it's part of music, it's seen as, ah, oh, that's a fashion thing. And you adopt that and then you move on. But I think, for me, I always felt, look, I've got to say, this is not fashion. I, you know, when I started throwing on a dress and, and some makeup, and when I was doing my stand-up, I'd already, I'd already taken off. People don't know this, or people get this back to front. They, some people think I took off because I was wearing makeup, but in fact, I'd already taken off. I was already getting articles in, you know, the the Observer and the Guardian and this and that, and, and my stand-up was taken off. And I started wearing a dress, and they they initially thought journalists thought I was making a joke out of it, and I say no, this is real. I, I felt I had to do it, and I had to talk about it in a hopefully comedic way of, you know, I used to talk about going into shops and people say, oh, yo, what, what's going on? I said, can I have a Mars bar? A Mars bar? What, are you going to put lipstick on the Mars bar? What are you going to do? You're going to use that as lipstick? The Mars bar's lipstick? No, I just want to buy the, lip, the bloody Mars bar. I've got money. You've got money. They allow you money? You transvestite, <laughs> transgender, you're allowed... Is that allowed? Can we... And I could, I could almost see all that flashing in front of their eyes when I, I'd go in and buy because I was... Nowadays, it's it's much more relaxed and I'm, I'm you know, because you have to get a, well, from a trans point of view, you have to get a look together so that you feel, ah, oh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a trans person. And I don't, I don't look hugely girly, you know, and so people do think I'm a trans person and I, I am a trans person, so, um, so what the hell? And then they go, oh, yeah, okay. So that's where we've got to after, what's it, 35 years? 35 years. You always look, you always look very good. I always remember seeing you, you, your nails in particular. Rosie. Well, I ran into you in the salon. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. You were just girls together. Linden your nails salon, done. yeah. Yeah, that was so funny. No, it's good. Yes. Yeah, it's good. And also it. with... She's very good, isn't she? She's great. I love her. Lynn, who does our nails, it's, uh, it's she's phenomenal. So you have to get a, a good yeah, a good person to do that. But you're very um, you don't mind so much if people get it wrong because inevitably people do get it wrong. We're all just trying the, to. The I mean, sometimes you don't. Yeah, sometimes we we, we, we don't yeah. mean it. We don't we don't mean to do sometimes and and you know sometimes people can get terribly offended by that and I completely understand it. But you're kind of much yeah. more relaxed about it, I guess. Now, I'm going to be relaxed because I am gender fluid. I've always said I'm gender fluid. You yeah, know, that's true, yeah. There's traits in myself which I think are distinctly boy and, and, and then some are girl. I talk, call it boy mode and girl mode. Some people might say, well, those are not very good phrases. But I, if you can come up with a better phrase, then I'll go with that. But that's how I've, I, I've looked at it. I'm based in girl mode now, uh, but I'm playing a role out here which is a male role. So, And I will play male roles. I'll play trans roles or male roles. I think that's fair, and um, mm. I'm on the set here in, in Toronto, and there's uh, and 
you can't see it. There's a little cut on my face here because a, a mat box, which is the, the sort of barn doors thing around the camera, it was shooting down on me and it fell off on, on my face. Oh, no. And, uh, and I went, oh, oh, what's happening there? And then a medic came in and another guy, I was wired up to a machine because my character was in a position where they were, needed medical supervision. And the guy who wired me up to a machine, <laughs> he was helping me. And I realised that he was a medic as well, even though... I thought he was someone in charge of the equipment. He, I, re, I realized from his T-shirt he was wearing that he was a medic too. So he was helping me out. And he was calling me he, and the others were calling me she. And I was going to say to him, uh, they're calling me she because I'm actually trans. And I, I thought I, I just didn't, I thought, oh, <laughs> nah. I'll just leave it because <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to deal with this lip that's bleeding at the moment. So it, yeah, it's no biggie. Uh, and for some people, it is a big thing. But for me, I'm, I'm going to leave it fluid. I'm, I'm trying to tell the truth about what's going on genetically inside me. And it may not be genetics, it may be chromosome, it may be this, it may be that, but I, uh, there, there's an article, most recent article, talked about the, the sexing of the brain, which comes in when you're very early. I don't know if you've read articles on this, but it's, mm. it, it, it's a very early thing that comes in. And, and, and bizarrely, if you have more testosterone, then the brain goes female. If you have more estrogen, then it goes more male, kind of opposite the way you think it would go. But we know that the fetuses all start as girls and then some get coded boy. We know it's XX and XY. It's not XX and YY, it's XX and XY. So we think about the massive differences between girls and boys, men and women, but we're already on by the chromosomes linked. Uh, I think the Victorians in Britain have said everything is bad, all sex is bad. Go, have lots of babies, but don't enjoy it and don't <laughs> That's talk about it. But, Yes, and put skirts down below your your, your furniture for your furniture. I the know the they used Remember to that do one? that. They used to do that, Rosie. You used to put um, like yeah, so you didn't see the legs of the table in case you were, I don't know, Cover sexually it. aroused by the legs of the table. Oh God, crazy! Absolutely crazy! It's nuts. <laughs> um, we wanted to talk to you about the marathons that you've done because <gasps> wow. we. I mean, I'm trying to total oh, yes. them all up because there's two different. You did sport relief, and then last December. Yeah. It was 27 marathons oh, in... That was incredible, wasn't like, it? 27 marathons, 27 days. Well, 27, 27 days. That was a, a sport relief one. And that was the last one yeah. for Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And that, uh, that was, was beautiful with a double marathon on the last day, which was... Which I don't know if you... Double marathon? I, I don't know if you know this. I, yeah, I had to do a double marathon because I was... Oh, day five was in hospital. So I had a double marathon at the end. <laughs> and they had a link back to London, which finished at quarter past three our time in, in South Africa. And I knew that if I could finish in that, then I could probably get an extra half a million in donations. I thought it would be really good to, to do this. So I was desperately trying to get there before it cut off. And we got there with 53 seconds to spare. I've, I've seen the piece of thing there, the footage, 53 seconds before it cut off. So I was literally, I had to speed up in the last hour, which having run for 10 hours to speed up in your 11th hour is oh, not God. fun. But, um, yeah, it's so that was happened. Then I started going um, make humanity great again, and I did uh, initially twenty nine marathons in twenty nine days around Europe just before lockdown, almost like a week before lockdown started. And then I did thirty two marathons in thirty one days with a double marathon at the end, which George Clooney did the countdown for. You and McGregor, and then George. Oh, Clooney. it was so fantastic! Was... I loved that. It was so brilliant. I don't know, but you were doing that and doing stand up at night. Rosie, it was amazing. I know, I, mean, was, I know you saw it as well. Was, we were both watching, both watching it online and could not believe what we were seeing. It was a bit weird, wasn't it? Because I was just talking, there was no one in the audience and I was just talking online to anyone <laughs> in the world. And it was great because we had people from India checking in and Australia and America. And, and I love I love having this global reach thing. 
Um, but yeah, I'm just talking to no one in particular. And so if I made anyone laugh, uh, Sarah Johnson, who's my event manager and tour manager, she was there at the side. So we were in the same bubble. So I could hear her laugh. Occasionally I make her laugh. But apart from that, I had to just play around in my brain. Uh, but yeah, run for about six hours, talk to people, half an hour for each person, and then uh, and then stop about six, 6.30, and then do the gig at seven. And on the last day, I did a marathon, and then another half of a marathon, then did the gig, and then finished the marathon to finish bang on 12 midnight. So we end each episode by getting guests to tell us their biggest fail, regret, and win. Mm. Um, so we'll start with fail. Mm. Uh Biggest fail. Well, the biggest fail was was um, not running twenty seven marathons in twenty seven days in South oh, Africa. Behave. <laughs> in, no, that's what happened in twenty six. Uh, what was it? Twenty sixteen. I hope you're thoroughly no, ashamed of yourself. No, twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. So 2014, I went out there to do the 27 marathons in 27 days, and I failed. I only did four in four days, got rhabdomyolysis, had to go to hospital, and I had to stop. I thought I could go for hospital a couple of days and then catch up, but no. So that was the biggest fail. But I came back yeah, I did. Uh, two mm. years later and got it done. Mm. So do you have any regrets? The, the biggest f- uh, I try not to regret. I regret Good. that I, I couldn't play football longer than I could maybe though there is this thing that in the teenage years all your bones move and and everything and so training really hard in your teenage years is maybe bad for the body and I didn't train at all in my teenage years so maybe that means I can run all these marathons now and your win well there there are a few now that I think playing Hollywood Bowl was pretty damn good um Mm -hmm. it was just beautiful because Monty Python had played Hollywood Bowl back in the early 80s and I was there playing Hollywood Bowl and most stand-ups don't play it. So it was beautiful as a, a kid had been you know, doing street performing at Covent Garden and failing to get it together to, to get to Hollywood Bowl. That was a beautiful win. Oh, that's a lovely win. That is gorgeous. Thank you so much for talking yeah, to us today. You. It's just been a joy. I, I could talk to you for hours and hours <laughs> and hours. Thank you, Eddie. Thank, Thank you much to, to both of you. Uh, great to have a chat. Bye. I'll Bye. see you in the nail salon. Yeah, Robbie. I'll see you there. <laughs> <laughs>